Hello and welcome to Who Watches the World Cup, the only podcast on the internet that compares the football of this year's Euro 2020 and the politics of the countries involved. This is like a mini solo episode uh, I'm going to do it in one take on my own because uh, Dave is currently isolating with COVID-19. Dave is double vaccinated, as is his girlfriend, and yet here we are. We have a positive test and an isolation because this world is pretty crazy. So that's something I'll kind of touch on in a little bit. Um, But the semi-finals themselves, I guess I'm going to have to try and do my politics bits and Dave's footballing bits. What's a man supposed to do? I'm just a guy that talks about comic books. I don't know anything about football, but we'll try and break down the semi-finals a little bit. We had Italy versus Spain. I've got to admit, this was a game that made me feel pretty confident going into the final. Italy, of course, went through on penalties. If you're ever going to get against Spain, uh, you want it to be on penalties because I don't know what's happened to that Spanish team, but they can't shoot from the centre spot. Uh, Italy go through 4-2, but the game itself, Spain dominated pretty much the entire game. They had like 70% possession. They did 900 passes to Italy's 300, well, almost 400. But it's kind of insane how much Spain controlled the match to no avail at all. And that's the thing that kind of makes me feel a little bit uneasy going forward because England, from what I have seen from my lack of footballing knowledge, England have played a very control-heavy, possession-orientated style of football. And what Italy have shown here is that they don't really need to do that, right? They played a game where they only had 30% of the possession. They passed the ball a third of the time. They even passed the ball less accurately. But they still won. Spain had 16 shots uh, with five on target. Italy had seven shots with four on target, right? They had less than half the shots, but were almost as accurate that entire way through. Just controlling the game against Italy doesn't seem to make that much of a difference. But again, from me, somebody who doesn't know that much about football, the strength that we saw from the early Italian side seemed to come from Spinozola driving that ball forward and creating chances and... With him not in that Italian team, they didn't seem anywhere near as deadly in this match. So Italy, again, looking weaker than they did at the beginning, especially meeting Spinozola, especially lacking Spinozola, rather. Um, But if England just do what they always do and they score one goal and then sit back, let's hope it doesn't go to penalties. Because that's not our strong suit either. Although taking penalties is actually the major way that England score goals in international tournaments. We saw it in the World Cup where Harry Kane got the golden boot pretty much solely by scoring penalties. And we saw it again here um, against Denmark, England's first game to go into extra time. This, oh man, this game, this game. It's kind of a roller coaster of emotions, the England-Denmark game, because I've made... No, I haven't tried to hide my love of the Denmark team, or especially of of Kasper Schmeichel, of course. So I was pretty conflicted going in. 
But Denmark played really well, and Damsgaard, who came in to replace Christian Eriksen after the first match, scored an unbelievable free kick to put them ahead. And England only equalised because of a known goal on the Danish side. Um, I think Saka deserves a lot of credit, actually, on the England, for, you know, for England, for putting that ball in that then forced Denmark to concede the own goal. He should really have got an assist, it feels like. But again, England going back to the problem that in the previous game, I went, ah, Dave, I have to apologise. I've said before that England can't score, but here we go, 4-0 against Ukraine. Well, we get to Denmark and we're kind of relying on an own goal. So I don't know what it is with England. Why can't they score goals? Uh, I think I was reading something from Alan Shearer the other day where Alan Shearer said, you know, that how um, how important Sterling has been. And again, it feels like Sterling had a good game. I should apologise for saying mean things about him at the beginning of the tournament. But Alan Shearer said that this was probably Sterling's finest match in an England shirt, which kind of leaves me thinking, really? Like this game in which we score an own goal and then Sterling get he gets the penalty that allows us to win the game in extra time. But there's a lot of people, especially people who aren't English, who are looking at that penalty like, this seems generous. And so, of course, you know, we got the penalty, we were able to win the game. But England were fined by UEFA um, for the fans, the England fans. And this is kind of a problem. Um, well, it's really a problem. We were fined £25,000 for somebody in Wembley Stadium shooting Kasper Schmeichel in the face with a laser pointer as Harry Kane uh, lined up to took the penalty, which is fucking disgusting. Right? Like... It's been bad enough watching the England games and seeing the England fans when we get to the national anthem and the English fans boo countries during their national anthems. And, like, you can boo the players while the match has started if you want. Like, boo the referee if that is amusing to you. But, like, booing the country during its national anthem is... Yeah. It shows why the rest of the world doesn't like English football fans. And, you know, I'm starting to agree with them. But, I mean, it can kind of be said that English fans will boo anything. Uh, they'll, they'll boo other countries' national anthems. They'll boo the other players. They'll boo their own players uh, when they kneel in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Like, I'm pretty sure that, that English fans... I don't think they really like anything... The only thing they like is when England win. So uh, in this tournament, they should be pretty happy so far. But that kind of neatly uh, leads me on to a Financial Times article that gained a lot of uh, gained a lot of infamy, I suppose, this week. It was an opinion article by Gideon Rackman that was called uh, "Can Gareth Southgate Deliver Both Victory and Progressive Patriotism?" And it came up with some pretty interesting points. A lot of people on Twitter were angry about it. I don't know if you can believe that, dear listener. Could you believe that people on Twitter were, were angry about something that they hadn't read? Because in this article, 
Gideon uses a phrase that caused controversy, where he says, and I quote, Conservatives and Johnson supporters are less ecstatic. Some seem to believe that Southgate is becoming a tool of deep woke, with one Tory strategist telling me that the England's manager's patriotism essay was suspiciously well written. Now, it's this phrase, deep woke, that caused a lot of controversy here, with people suggesting that, that the, the writer of the article is, uh, is some kind of Tory stooge. Those people, I don't think, have actually read the article or understand what he is trying to say. The author of the article references the patriotism essay that Southgate wrote um, before the start of this tournament. I think it was June the 8th it was released. Um, it's called Dear England. It's a, an essay that Gareth Southgate uh, Southgate released saying, you know, talking about his, his pride in his country, talking about um, his form of patriotism, but how love of country doesn't mean that we shy away from the issues that we face as a country. Um, something that, you know, is being referred to within this article as progressive patriotism. And the writer of the article is then comparing that to critiques that we have seen coming from the Conservative Party, from, uh, from Boris Johnson and from other Conservative Party members. He brings up Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, uh, who accused the England players of indulging in gesture politics, uh, by by taking the knee, um, this seems pretty hypocritical. When Pretty Patel then takes a photograph of herself a couple of days ago in an England shirt, saying, "Come on, our England boys." Well, which one is it, uh, Pretty? Are you against gesture politics, or are you willing to gesture support for your country by wearing the England top? I don't know if anyone's ever noticed that politics tends to be hypocritical before, but here we are. But the kind of the point of the article was getting to the Southgate has to weigh up two separate parts of being English, right? He's got to he's got to weigh up the necessary need for victory in winning the tournament. But at the same time, his ultimate point about progressive politics could fall flat if they don't succeed in the final. And it's an interesting dilemma because Boris Johnson is relying on the same thing, right? Boris Johnson and the pro-Brexit Conservative Party will love England to win because, you know, just after Brexit, hey, we won the Euros. So who needs who here, right? But can Boris Johnson succeed in making that symbolic point when the manager of the England team is going, no, 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 no. This isn't for you. This is for the current generation. And our players will kneel. They will not shy away from their politics. And the politics that they're embracing isn't one of division, right? That the politics that they're saying isn't the same one as the government. So it's going to be really interesting if England can win this final to see how it's going to be spun by, uh, by all sides. Will Gareth Southgate continue to be vocal in saying our team won and it's a diverse team that reflects the present and future of England or will Boris Johnson be able to turn around and go oh well the Germans said that we couldn't do it and here we are and then we beat the Italians and the French they got knocked out too um maybe everyone gets to say something but um 
there's going to be a lot to prove in this last game. And will Southgate be able to prove the fans that booed when the players were kneeling? Will he be able to prove them wrong by winning the match? Right? They booed his team and they said, don't express yourself. But by expressing themselves, their politics, their views, their country, they've got to the final. Maybe they're even going to win it. We're going to find out in seven hours. But it is kind of crazy that, you know, we've, we've got this, these big chants of uh, football's coming home, all, all, all the good stuff. Um, and I know if, if Dave was here, well, if Dave was here, the first thing that, that he would be saying is, God, I'm handsome. He'd be saying, oh, I'm so handsome. I'm not as handsome as Kasper Schmeichel. But the only reason I'm not as handsome as Kasper Schmeichel is because that guy cuts his hair, which Dave doesn't do. Now, Kasper Schmeichel has a haircut that you could set your watch to. But Dave would be saying that this is a team, uh, this is a golden generation that has gone underappreciated and that we have players such as Sterling who have delivered incredible performances and not received the same amount of accolade and recognition as, you know, a generation ago with Sterling and Lamp, uh, not Sterling, sorry, with Gerrard and Lampard and, and so on who were so acclaimed and then never accomplished anything. Well, you know, here are here is your, your young generation of growing players. They reached the semi-final in the World Cup. And then a few years later, they reached the, the final of the Euros. Maybe they even win and they got the World Cup next year. How is this not, you know, a, a golden generation? Being more of a cynical, uglier man myself. England have had pretty much every advantage they could possibly have in this tournament right and this is something that even the the president of uefa who you know that they're, they're corrupt so but he you know as he made a fair point of saying certain teams have been given massive advantages by the fact that this tournament has been called pan-european the pan-european tournament has been spread out everywhere like Wales had to fly to Baku, Azerbaijan, and then to Italy. And then teams have had to go all over the place while England have played every game in Wembley, except for the one that they won 4-0. Which kind of makes you think, if, they, if they've if they kind of performed eh at Wembley, but they go to Rome and win 4-0, is it really an advantage? Do the England players like being in Wembley? Uh, I guess we'll find out. But again, the Italians have to come to Wembley for this because of COVID restrictions around Europe. And uh, given the state of COVID in our country, that seems a little bit ridiculous. In fact, COVID in the UK is ballooning. And, you know, you just have to look at uh, Dave and Dave and his partner to see the case of that, where you've got two people who are double vaccinated and yet... There we go, right? <laughs> yeah, great. Those those vaccinations have, uh, have have helped out loads. Fantastic, but there's multiple news stories saying about how the Euros themselves have have driven up COVID, and this was something that I was saying at the beginning of the tournament, right? Like Scotland connected two thousand coronavirus cases in their country to the Euros, and Eng England, we've seen that. COVID cases are 30% higher in men now than they are in women, which has been connected to the Euros as well, which seems like a somewhat sexist, reductive view of, uh, of football. But it does seem somewhat inevitable, doesn't it? 
I really don't think that it took a genius to to predict that that if you have this tournament, the majority of it is in this country. For you know, the majority of the England games are in this country. You allow people to go out and go to the pubs. You allow places to bend the rules. You don't cause further restrictions. You open things up, and then go, oh yeah, well it's the fans' fault. And this is another thing that UEFA have been criticised for as well, is that UEFA have said before you go to a match, you have to be tested, you have to prove, you know, you've got to prove that you're COVID safe. But what UEFA aren't doing is saying, don't go to bars before that, don't mix, public, avoid public transportation, none of that stuff. There were 40,000 fans at the semi-final in Wembley. And that's 40,000 people who have gone for drinks before, who have taken the train, who have et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, sure, you were tested two days ago. But when you take 40,000 people from around the country, I know that it's the final today. And my brother has just gone up from outside of Bristol to a pub outside of Wembley Stadium. And it doesn't matter how much you say. That doesn't sound like it's a particularly good idea. Right, that you. I know you want to be there. You want to feel that excitement. You want to feel. You know. You want to feel uh, the anticipation of the glory. Assuming that we win, you want to be there for the celebrations. But unless the government are actually the ones to say, "Sorry, guys, you're just going to have to party at home," and then in July. Well, sorry, it's July now. I guess in August. We're going to shut down again for a month. And then in August, once things have cooled down, we're going to have a national holiday to celebrate the winning. Right. And the players are going to be on a tour bus. The tour bus is going to go around different days in the month that uh, they'll start in London. And then on, you know, on on, on uh, Tuesday, it's in Bristol and Wednesday, it's in Manchester. And everyone has a chance to go out and, and, and see the team. And But no, th- there's none of that. And they're saying they're going to, you know, masks are no longer going to be necessary It's so easy to predict that it's kind of insulting. And again, we've seen it now where the prime minister literally said, oh, yeah, more people are going to die. And that's just something we're going to have to live with. The prime minister just said that. So it should be pretty easy to guess which one of this Boris Johnson slash Southgate divide I happen to be on, I guess. But... With all that said, 55 years after the World Cup, England have made it to a final at Wembley. Yeah, they've been given all of the advantage they could possibly be given. Yes, in the last game, somebody shot the opposing goalkeeper in the eyes with a laser pen to put him off. Like, granted, but (laughs) England have made it to the World Cup. Yes! Yes, they insulted Denmark by swapping to such a defensive form of football for 15 minutes that it insulted the warrior mentality that that team have shown to push them after losing their first two games to a semi-final. Did we play an unsportsmanlike style of football to get here? Yeah, we did. Yeah, the fans have been terrible, but we're here. And dear God, I hope they win. My mum was born in 1966. It's her 55th birthday this year. And, you know, that's a pretty cool uh, extra celebration to have on the uh, on the same year as, as that anniversary. So 
come on boys, you know. I've said a lot about Sterling, I've had to apologise for some of it, but th- he'll be a legend if they win this game. And, um, you know, even if they don't, no, I'm not going to say anything. If they don't, I'll be angry on the next episode. I know Dave would say that this is a once-in-a-lifetime experience for us as England fans. I know that he'll be enjoying the game from isolation. Uh, we were supposed to be watching it together. Um, so, again, it's kind of a heartbreaking uh, heartbreaking thing for me that we're not going to have that chance. But with that said, the whole country is behind that team here. And we've had a lot, you know, the, it's coming home, it's coming home, it's coming. Football's coming home. We can only hope. God, I hope they win. So, can can they do it? You might you you might know before I have if you're if you're listening to this. Oh. Join us in the final episode of Who Watches the World Cup, where we will break down that Italy v England match. God, I hope they win. <laughs>